you were here last week, we were looking into our verse of the year, uh, Acts 4.20, and we're uh, looking into that. And this week we're rejoining our series uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and apparently it's been a good number of years going through this book, and we're coming into the final section. So if you've got your Bible with you, then please turn to Luke chapter 20. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, then just throw up your hand and uh, someone will get one to you. I think there's a few more lying around. Uh, if you're in the Red Church Bible, it's on page uh, 1054. And we're going to be reading all of chapter 20 and heading into chapter 21. So Luke chapter 20. Let's read that together now. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it is from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls, will be crushed. The teachers of the law and chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right 
and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die. They are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I'm going to pray for Phil as he comes bring God's word to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Luke. Thank you for all that you have to teach us through your words. Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds this morning to your words. 
Lord, I thank you for Phil and the time that he has spent preparing this week. Lord, now as he comes to open your word, I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, that you'd be speaking through him, using him, equipping him with everything that he needs now as he speaks. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, thanks, James. Over the next term, we're going to be looking at um, the the final chapters of Luke. We've been going through the whole book of Luke in chunks over the last four years, and we've finally come to this last section. It begins here with Jesus teaching in the temple courts. The middle part of this section uh, covers uh, Jesus' death, uh, and the final part um, looks at how Jesus rose back to life and commissioned his disciples to take the good news to all the world. So our passage today begins with uh, Jesus teaching in the temple and, and in walks the chief priests and teachers of the law and they want to know what right Jesus has to teach about God. What gives him the authority to do that? And it's a good question. What right does anyone have to take authority over anyone else. Jesus, in teaching in the temple, basically implies his authority is God's authority. He's not asked for permission. He's not been given a mandate by the local authorities to be there and and teach. He goes and he teaches as if God has given him authority, as if he is the Messiah from God. And that's why in walk the chief priests, the teachers of the law, uh, basically all the good and the great of the country, they storm in and, and, and kick a fuss. In effect, Jesus is claiming to be God. That's what's happening there. But in the midst of all this commotion, in the midst of this, of this confrontation, at the heart of this passage that we've just read this morning, is the deeper question, are you willing to place yourself under Jesus' authority? And more than anything, this question is what is relevant to us today. Because our culture is used to the mantra of individualism. We're told as an individual, fulfill your potential. Live your life by your rules as long as it doesn't hurt others. Achieve things for yourself as much as you can. You've only, you only live once. Our culture encourages independence to rise above the crowd, imagining ourselves wherever we want, doing what we want. It encourages us to be our own authority. There's a famous line from the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henry that summarizes the spirit of our age. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so the problem is this. When we're told that Jesus is the highest authority, there's a kickback because him being highest authority is a threat to our status as captain and master. And here's the point. In our passage this morning, Luke is wanting us to see what it does and doesn't look like to accept Jesus as our highest authority. He wants us to see how we kick against him, to to see how the only way to win the battle against Jesus' authority is to submit to it. 
Now, I, I realize this is a long passage. Um, there's much to explain. And another time, we're going to go through it uh, more carefully. But today, I'm going to rattle through it looking at that big theme of authority. And, and, and hopefully, we'll see that there are three warnings to listen to and one example to follow. And just a heads up, very quickly, the first point is very long, so don't get scared um, after, after, you know, most of our time is spent in the first point and think, oh no, how long are we going to actually be here? Don't worry, that first point is long. Um, and it lays a foundation for the other points. So let's dive in now. The first point is this, we reject Jesus' authority when we question it. So I'm going to use three subheadings in this point as well. That just kind of helped. Look, just trust me. Run with me, okay? Work with me here. The first subheading, the trap. First subheading, the trap. Jesus was teaching, and it's a powerful picture. What you get in this picture is, is something phenomenal. You've got God's king in God's temple, teaching God's people about God's kingdom. It's a powerful relationship, a powerful picture of relationship with God. There's no coercion. People are wanting to be there. People are streaming in from everywhere, wanting to be where God's king is, under God's authority, teaching about God's kingdom, the gospel. But in bustles, the chief priests and teachers of the law. Look with me at verse 2. This is what they demand. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? They wanted to know what right Jesus had to teach like he was teaching. Like he was the expert, like he was God. But their question is a trap. They wanted Jesus to state that he was the Messiah from God. And if he did that, it would mean that they could act on behalf of the Romans and arrest Jesus. Because the the Romans believed that a God claim was a challenge to Caesar's God claim. Do you see that? So to claim to be God is to claim authority away from Caesar. It's treason. On the other hand, if Jesus had refused to answer their question, it would have gone against everything he was doing and saying about himself. But Jesus sees through it. And he exposes the trap. Verse 3, he replied, I will all ask, also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? And then Luke handily explains how this catches them out in verse 5. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So Jesus' answer forces them into a a, a dilemma. In other words, he's turned their trap on themselves. And that's why in verse 7 they answer, we don't know where it came from. It's a cop-out. But what Jesus is doing here is challenging the heart behind the question. He could see that the question was aimed at his authority And whereas the people around Jesus accepted all that he said and put themselves under his authority, the chief priests and teachers of the law fought him. Even when Jesus was showing them there and then in his teaching, in his presence, in his being, in his miracles, in every self-authentication that he gave them to show them his authority, they were rejecting it outright. 
And Jesus goes on, because he knows those guys are still hard-hearted. He goes on to challenge them. And he tells a parable about Israel's historic relationship with God's authority. It's a warning parable. That's the second sort of subheading. The warning. The trap and the warning. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard. That's a picture of God's place of blessing and rule. And in the vineyard are the tenants, a picture of Israel. So so you've got God's blessing and rule, and then you've got the tenants under that blessing and rule, in that place. And Jesus explains how hostile these tenants are and have been historically Because God, time and time again, has sent them messengers. Sent them messengers with his word, inviting relationship with them. Guys, come and listen to me. Time and time again, the prophets came to the people of Israel and said, Oh, listen to God. He says this, you're like a rebellious rebellious child. Come into relationship with God. Messenger after messenger that is sent to the tenants from the vineyard owner, is rejected. And then in verse 13 and 14, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So just as the tenants had rejected the messengers from the owner of the vineyard, so Jesus was saying that Israel had treated God in the same way. Throughout history, the messengers had been sent, faithful kings, faithful prophets, godly priests, all who preached the truth about God's love for his people, they had been rejected systematically by Israel and historically by Israel. And now, God has sent his son. God has sent his son. His son, the greatest revelation of God in history. His very son, whom God loves. And Jesus knew that the Pharisees and teachers of the law there were planning to kill him. And here's the warning. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. In other words, to reject God's messengers, his word, to reject that invitation for relationship and love from God is to reject God. And to do that, God's invitation will simply go to other people. Actually, in this particular point in, in, in Luke's gospel, Luke is, uh, Jesus is talking about Gentiles. That's why in verse 16, when all the people heard this, they said, God forbid. It's, it's like a, a shock, a recoil, a horror for them. Why? Because they had forever seen themselves as the tenant in God's place of blessing in the vineyard. They'd seen themselves as a people who had been given that by God under special blessing, a special relationship, because genetically they were under God's promises, descendants of Abraham. 
And historically, they'd seen anyone who wasn't an Israelite as outside of God's blessing place. For them, it was an anathema, a horror, an unthinkable thing that God should then suddenly decide to give that blessing to other people, to people like you and I who are not Israelites. And Jesus rams home his point here. In In the third subheading, the revelation The warning is simply this. This is the revelation. Verse 17, Jesus looks directly at them and asks, then what is the meaning of what is written? What is the meaning of this, guys? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is saying he is the most important person in the kingdom of God. Just like the capstone of that temple was the most important stone in the building. And he's saying entry into the kingdom is not dependent on whether you are God's special person or not. Whether you've got Abraham's genes running through your veins. But whether you accept the Messiah from God. Everyone who listens to God's ultimate revelation. The Messiah from God. Who, who accepts Jesus' authority, everyone, everyone can be part of God's kingdom. And the warning is to oppose him brings destruction to yourself. To reject his authority like those chief priests and teachers of the law were rejecting him is to turn Jesus into a stumbling block. An obstacle in the way of knowing God for yourself. It's a sobering warning, isn't it? And let me say, I'm going to say, it might be the elephant in the room for you. It is unapologetically exclusive. There's no room for relativism here. There's no room for saying, that's your opinion, well done. Bless you. I'll carry on my way. There's no room for saying, I have my ideas about God and you have your ideas about God. Let's just pretend that they're both two two different ways of getting to the same place. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is saying he's the capstone of the temple. The linchpin, the most important person in God's kingdom. If you cannot accept that, he will become the stumbling block, the obstacle in your way to knowing God truly and wonderfully for yourself. The problem with those religious leaders is that Jesus had become that stumbling block. He was inviting them in. He was inviting them to join the crowds who were listening to his teaching. He was inviting them into that place of blessing, God's king in God's temple, teaching God's people about God's kingdom. And all they did was stand outside and judge. There's the warning. There's the tragedy. The ultimate revelation of who God is standing before them in the flesh And he's a stumbling block. But his hand is out to invite. Guys, will you accept Jesus? 
Jesus as the highest authority, as God's revelation, as God's king, who is here to love you and invite you into his kingdom, his way and only his way. Will you take that this morning? It means coming under Jesus' authority. It means not questioning it. It means accepting it. And let me just reassure you, by that I mean it doesn't mean there's no place for asking God questions. Okay, do ask your questions, please. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, or if you are in deep doubt or deep confusion or or wondering about so many things that are going on in your life and you just want to know where God is, ask questions. Because God is relational. This isn't a command, accept God's authority or else and tick the box. This is, oh, just, just enter into dialogue with God. But enter carefully. Examine the motive of your heart. Work it out. Because the chief priests and teachers of the Lord didn't. Jesus invites us to come with questioning, but hearts willing to listen. That's the first point. The second point is, we reject Jesus' authority when we undermine it. So some, sp- some spies are sent to trap Jesus over the issue of taxes in the Roman Empire. So verse 21, let me read it to you. So the spies question him, Teacher, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity, that's kind of uh, their, 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 their ruse, um, and said to them, Show me a denarius. Uh, that's a Roman coin. Whose image, is, whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In summary, the issue here is that if Jesus were to support the Roman taxes, he would, say, he would be saying that the Roman occupation of Israel, which was going on at the time, was legal, along with all the Roman everyday atrocities. If he were to oppose the taxes, then his opponents would again have grounds to arrest him for rebellion. Again, the spies are there to undermine Jesus. They're coming with a seemingly innocent question, but there's an undercurrent of, of, of trying to catch Jesus out. And Luke wants us to see it. However Jesus answers, he's going, his words are going to be twisted and used against him. And Luke wants us to be careful to see that undermining Jesus' authority is a sneaky route to rejecting it. It's an innocent question. But the purpose is to twist the answer to suit the circumstances. And we're to be careful too For example, often we're tempted to believe a lie. Doesn't God want me to be happy? It's an innocent enough question. Doesn't God want me to be happy? But let me tell you the truth. 99% of the time when we ask that question... Behind it is a sinful desire to undermine Jesus' authority with a lie. 
quite honestly, the number of times I've met people and know people who have used this to justify sin. To justify even adultery and theft and character assassination. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Because behind the question is this. I've got something that I want to do. I know it's wrong. But doesn't God want me to be happy? This will make me happy. So it must be right. The truth is, this world is not about our happiness. It's about knowing God's love. And and that is really, 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 really important. Because in the midst of difficult times, we know we're loved, not happy. In the midst of times when actually our lives are crumbling around us, we look to God's love, not our happiness. And the truth is so much stronger than the lie, isn't it? But the lie is so much more tempting to believe because it's what we so often preach to ourselves to justify our sin. It's an example of undermining Jesus' authority. Jesus says, I love you. I love you in the midst of your circumstances. You don't have to be happy to know my love. We're running out of time. So, thirdly, we reject Jesus' authority when we nitpick. So, verses 27 to 39, I'm not going to read them through, but Jesus is challenged with a question about the resurrection. And essentially, the question boils down to an argument that totally disregards the power and might and glory of the resurrection. And what the Sadducees are trying to do is they are trying to disprove the idea of the resurrection by posing what seems to be an impossible question. I remember once in my last church, we had a guy called John Lennox, who's a a maths professor from Oxford. And he came to do an outreach event to to debate with uh, with people who who, who aren't Christians about the validity of, of the Christian faith. And the floor was open to discussion after he'd given a brief talk. And one man stood up and asked a paradoxical question. It's quite common. Could an infinite God, he said, with infinite power, create an object too big for him to carry? We all thought. I really thought, what's John going to say? And John, with the greatest of respect, pointed out what the problem with that question was. The problem was not what could or couldn't happen. It was not whether God could create an object too big for God to carry. The problem was whether or not God was actually bothered with the God paradox in the first place. The point being that we can get so caught up in nitpicking and hypotheticals that we ignore the bigger issue at stake, the thing that God wants us to talk about. 
God wants us to talk about a relationship with him. He wants us to know his love. And that's what the problem was with the Sadducees' question. They didn't stop to ask whether their question was actually relevant to the resurrection event at all. In other words, when you put it into the context of the resurrection, it's a silly question, isn't it? There is Jesus with the angels and, and archangels behind him in glory and majesty and wonder coming down to the earth to judge the living and front and the dead. The, res, the, 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 the Those who have died previously coming to life in new resurrected bodies and Jesus pulls the handbrake and goes, okay, guys, um, oh, this is a problem, isn't it? I don't know which of you should marry the girl that you were married to. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Do you see how silly it is? Do you see how silly nitpicking is? But we do it. Why? To undermine. We do it to try and and get around the whole issue of coming under Jesus' authority. Christians are like this, therefore I will reject Jesus' authority. The Bible says this about same-sex marriage, therefore I will reject Jesus' authority authority how many people have we how many people have we come across who have rejected Jesus' authority on the basis of a silly a silly tiny 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 reason now listen i get it for some of us there are big issues over little things but can i encourage you just park it for a second Look at the love of Jesus. Look at the revelation of God that Jesus is. How much he shows us the great love of God. Focus on that park just for a second. Suspend your, 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 your issue, your problem, your query, your, your, your concern. And if you like, put it in the context of Jesus' love. Don't focus on it. That obscure thing which, which obstructs your way to Jesus. So that's the third thing to reject, uh, to, to, to nitpick, is to reject Jesus' authority. But it brings us to the last point, and the most wonderful point of this passage, which is simply this. We accept Jesus' authority when we love him. Skipping over to the, to the end of, of this passage, Jesus looks around the temple courts and he spots two things. One is the rich and powerful throwing their money around into the temple coffers. The other is a poor woman who under the radar gives two copper coins. Money of insignificance, really. But they were greatly valued by her And in verse 3 of chapter 21, Jesus makes that point. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. In Mark's gospel, her story comes after a debate about who is the greatest, or what is the greatest commandment. And, in, 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 and when Mark points her out, his point is this. 
if you want to see what the greatest commandment looks like, if you want to see someone who loves the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength and all their mind, then remember this woman who gives everything because she loves God and all that he is. And similarly, Luke's point is a contrast. Jesus has taken a battering. Incident after incident, confrontation after confrontation, rejection after rejection from the powerful elite of Israel, and then he sees the beautiful, humble heart of this insignificant woman. She doesn't reject God's right to rule over her. She submits to him, and she gives all she has to him. She doesn't undermine God's authority. She, she doesn't stop with hand hovering over the offering box thinking, but hang on, surely God wants me to be happy. She doesn't nitpick. She trusts God to care for her future and drops all she has into that offering box because she loves him. And she's humbled me because she loves God in a way that challenges my love for God. In many ways, the point of her being in the Bible is similar to last week's point when we were talking about immersing ourselves in Jesus and what happens. And, and we're invited to look with reverence at her heart because her heart was right with God. We're invited to realize the many ways in which we reject Jesus' authority and to repent and to join her in giving to God our lives, everything that we don't want to, to give out of love. And it's interesting, out of all the people in this passage, Jesus' love reach out to her, reaches out to her. It means that it's not love, uh, it's, not, it's not power, it's not money or church attendance or influence that matters to God. What matters to God is our hearts. And the promise is, if we embrace Jesus' authority, like this woman embraces God's authority, we will be like her. That's the promise. We will love God freely with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds and all of our strengths so that no sacrifice will be too great, no matter how small and living under his authority will be a joy. That's how this passage challenges us and guides us. That's what Luke wants us to see. And the invitation is simply this. To examine our hearts and say, Lord, these are the ways in which I believe my lies I preach about you where I don't want you to be authority over areas of my life. Please forgive me. These are the ways in which I reject your authority outright. 
These are the ways in which I undermine your authority. These are the ways in which I nitpick. These are the small things I focus on that mean I don't think about your authority over me. Lord God, please forgive me. That's the invitation here. So let's come together under his authority, loving him, immersing ourselves in him, and humbly giving him everything. Because we love him, like this woman loved God. Let's pray together. Dear Father God, our confession is that we are sinful people wanting to be the captains of our souls and the masters of our fate. And Father God, too often we don't trust you. Father, I pray that we would take this challenge, this passage, and confess to you all that we have done wrong in terms of our attitude towards your authority. And Father, may we love you and put ourselves under your authority like those people in the temple did, like that woman did. Father God, may we spare nothing in sacrifice and praise to give to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.